You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. Today's show is part two of a two-part discussion with the incredibly talented macro investor, Lynn Alden. Lynn recently published a book titled Broken Money. And if you haven't heard the first part of the conversation, I would highly recommend you go back into your podcast app and find the episode that precedes this one. And if you've already listened to that first part, well, welcome back. And uh, we're getting ready to talk about the merging of a credit-based money ledger system with a commodity-backed money system into a single new technology, which is Bitcoin. During this conversation, we talk about many different technical trade-offs that Bitcoin makes, such as privacy versus auditability, scripting and smart contracting, why many people look at Bitcoin as old technology relative to many of the other crypto projects and what they're missing with that point of view, along with many other important topics. So with that, here is part two with Lynn Alden on her newly released book, Broken Money. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. All right, so I'm back here with Lynn Alden talking about her brand new book, Broken Money. For people that are just joining us and haven't listened to the first part, I highly, highly recommend that you go back and listen to the first part with Lynn, Stig, and myself, where we talk really about the first half of the book and the history and the technology of money and how we've kind of come to this third phase. Um, If you listen to the tail end of the last conversation, Lynn talks about there being like basically three phases. We're getting ready to go into a deep discussion on this third phase. And before we go there, Lynn, my as I look back at the conversation that we just had in the first part, and you did such a great job talking about how money kind of is at the center of all these conflicts throughout history. And I think a person who might be hearing some of those ideas for the first time or asking themselves, like, why is that the case? Or are we overstretching this correlation that money's always at the root cause of, of all these geopolitical conflicts that we've seen throughout time? I guess I'm just trying to really get to the essence of why is that? Why is that the fundamental thing? Is it because like, if, if we look at it from a first principle standpoint, that money represents energy exchange between two parties? Is that truly the essence of why money's always at the center of this? Or is there something else that you would kind of define? I think who has the ability to siphon value from others and redirect that value is just obviously a foundational aspect of organization and ethics and conflicts and peace and that kind of thing. And as monetary technologies have changed over time, it changes the power structure of who can siphon that money and rearrange it, and then also how thoroughly they can do so. So how easy it is for them to do it. Do they have complete control over doing that? Do they have partial control? Do they have minimal control? And so these things really matter from a domestic perspective, a geopolitical perspective. And anytime someone studies a field, they tend to believe that that thing is like the core of a lot of other things, right? So I I try not to overstate things to say, okay, literally everything in the world can be tied back to money. And you know, it's not really the case. I mean, we have the world's a complex place. There's human nature. There's just the rules of physics, for example. There's just limitations for how the world works. There's always going to be conflicts and challenges and things to overcome. But money, along with energy, 
and a few other key things like that are clearly among the foundations of power and how we interact with each other and who really has kind of control over others. In the first part, we talked about ledgers. We talked about commodity money. We talked about why each of them exist, why each of them have benefits and setbacks in their use. We you so eloquently lay out the importance of, of the telegram, being able to communicate and send information at the speed of light from Europe to the United States and how you can manage ledgers this way in a much more cost-efficient way, but you're not able to immediately settle. So as we look at this new innovation, Bitcoin, blockchains, all of this, what is this enabling that has never been like truly at the essence and first principles? What is that enabling that hasn't been able to be enabled uh, historically? Up until I would say two, two things. One would be instant settlements throughout human history. Information and material could only move as fast as humans. So, you know, you can't a thousand years ago, Europe and China could not instantly send information or value to each other. You had to move along the Silk Road to do it. And ever since the invention of the telegraph, and specifically the deployment of the telegraph throughout the 1850s, 1860s, and globally by the early 20th century, we've had the ability to send information around the world instantly, which includes transaction agreements, whereas, of course, physical settlement of precious metals and other value can only happen at the speed of matter, transportation, and more importantly, not just transporting it, but also authentifying it, basically all the logistics of securing and authenticating that value. And once we had more bandwidth, once we had more complex encryption, once we had more complex organizational structures, what the invention of Bitcoin is, in a way, is the first introduction of a credible way to settle final value nearly as quickly as we can do transactions. The kind of the first period of human history was everything slow. And then the period of history from the telegraph up till right before Bitcoin was transactions are fast, but settlements are slow. And post-Bitcoin, we're in a world where final value is fast as well. So transactions and settlements could all move roughly at the speed of light. The second thing I think is the ability to build a credibly decentralized ledger. So you know, until this point, any ledger is controlled by humans is centralized. So uh, you know, a central bank runs the monetary ledger for their country, for example. A bank runs the ledger for their clients. And we basically build ourselves with a hierarchy of ledgers. So there's like smaller ledgers built on top of bigger ledgers. And at the foundation is the central bank. And it's just a centrally controlled ledger where they get to determine how many units there are. Uh, they could determine who gets to use those units. They could take units from some others. They could, re they could redeploy those units. And they can double the amount of units. They can triple the amount of units. They can cut the number of units in half. And what Bitcoin is interesting is that it's a ledger but no single entity is in control of that ledger unless they're willing and able to expend so much physical resources that they can control the majority of the hash rate. And even then, they're still like stuck by the rules of the nodes, which are themselves decentralized as well. And so it's very hard to gain even partial control over the ledger. And it's nearly impossible to gain complete control over the ledger. So it's easier to censor transactions than it is to make more Bitcoin, for example. But that's what this kind of represents. It's a way for humanity to have a credible, scarce unit ledger system backed by energy and backed by encryption and essentially controlled by a more distributed set of users rather than, say, 12 people at the Federal Reserve. 
So you say it's backed by energy. So it's not just a ledger. It's also this commodity money simultaneously. And we've never, we've never seen that, something like that before that you're able to have saleable commodity money that instantly settles. You write in your book, and I'm, I'm just going to read this quote here. It's not an accident that it took approximately a century and a half after transactions were enabled to occur at the speed of light for bearer asset settlement to also occur at the speed of light. If I were to describe in one paragraph why money has been broken around the world for so long while almost everything else has improved substantially, and you list energy abundance, technology abundance, and so forth, it's due to this gap between transaction and settlement speeds that the telecommunication era created. Any comments on on that summarization of because really you're saying in that paragraph this is what this is all about in the future is is exactly that. Yes, yeah, so, so I would say during the century and a half where that gap existed, the problem is that the only way to fulfill the gap is basically centralization. You know, you have gold that doesn't move quickly. You have transactions that can move quickly, and so the question becomes: Who do you trust to manage that gap between transactions and settlements? Because that necessarily exists in a state of credit. So who is the ultimate arbiter and maintainer of that credit ledger? And so basically throughout human history, and especially this past century and a half, most of the physical shortcomings of money, you know, whether their lack of divisibility, whether their lack of speed, whatever the case may be, most of those were handled with various technologies or, or new procedures that make them more efficient, but at the cost of centralization. So it's far easier to use banknotes or credit cards and things like that than it is to exchange gold and silver coins with each other, especially if we're operating in a, in a complex global society. And so we give up, you know, we get all these benefits, but we give up control towards these central entities that can control that abstraction layer, which in this modern era has been nation states, uh, nation states and their the banking systems that they control. And so what's interesting is that Bitcoin is kind of this first kind of um, trend change, potential trend change, where it says, here's another efficient way to do it. And this is the first one that doesn't further centralize it. It actually decentralizes it while still giving you those benefits of speed and other capabilities. And I think that's kind of why so many people are interested in Bitcoin. You know, from an outside perspective, if you're in the United States or Europe and your money works well enough you know, you're not worried about getting cut off from your bank and you're, you buy your groceries every week and it's not a problem. When you look more globally, it's a much bigger problem. You know, there's 160 different fiat currencies in the world. The long tail of most of them are, don't hold their value, don't have any global acceptance. And so it's very hard for people to save in liquid value. You know, we, we, in the United States, we think, okay, so the dollar degrades slowly. So you got to buy real estate, you got to buy stocks, you got to buy all these other things. And that's, you know, works, works well enough. You know, I think as I cover in the book, there's downsides to that whole system, but it's workable. Whereas say you go to Egypt, the currency degrades much quicker. The stock market is not robust enough to put serious money into. So people put it into real estate, which is illiquid. And then you have all these like empty homes because for like, it's like, if you want to save, well, go, go build a home. And maybe we'll be able to rent it out in the future. And so it's very hard for developing countries, people in developing countries to accumulate liquid capital. And that is a friction that is significant and exists. And it's so, you know, literally in 2023, there are doctors in Egypt. If you ask them, how do you save money? They say, well, I go to the black market. I exchange Egyptian pounds for physical U.S. dollars. I then hold those physical U.S. dollars 
in my apartment with no interest, like liability to be stole or lost in a house fire or something. And that is the best monetary technology they know what to save in. Wow. Because they're not going to hold Egyptian pounds. They're not going to put the dollars in Egyptian banks because Egypt often has a dollar shortage. So they, they're always prone to say, okay, well, we have to take these dollars and we'll give you an equivalent amount of Egyptian pounds at the exchange rate we decide. It's very hard for them. And of course, the other option is gold. Many of the, this basically houses gold and physical dollars are their variety of options that they have. And none of those are perfect. It just shows kind of the frictions around the world. And especially like, then if you want to send money, it's like, well, you try to send money there and it's like, well, this service doesn't allow you to send money to Egypt. And this, this service doesn't allow you to send money out of Egypt. So you have to like find the, this, you try a second way and that doesn't work either. So you find a third way and that one works, right? So there's frictions both in terms of saving money and in terms of transacting money globally that, you know, hundred plus countries, billions of people in the world encounter that is kind of abstracted away from us in the United States and Europe and Japan. And, and you know, we have our own problems with money, but on a global scale, the problems are much bigger. And it's in large part because of this, this gap between transactions and settlements. And therefore, in order to rely on a solid unit of account, you need to rely on some sort of central entity, which in the modern era is really the, the Federal Reserve. So you wrote extensively about Bitcoin prior to writing this book, and I would argue understood it as one of the top thinkers in this space for quite a while. After writing a book of this magnitude and all the history and everything that you studied and then wrote about Bitcoin there at the end of the book, what is something that you learned or that you took away that you didn't really know or think about prior to writing the book? So it's an amazing question because in Broken Money, I inject my own kind of thoughts and organization and emphasize key points that I don't see emphasized enough. But it really draws from hundreds of other people that have, have created so much amazing literature or podcasts or books or various mediums of information. So whether I'm talking about older technologies, or the Bitcoin world, you know, if you look through the citations, you'll see a lot of familiar names, the people that have put out amazing content. I think kind of what sparked me to write the book was the realization of how big that, how important that gap between transaction and settlements is. So the fact that transactions occur at the speed of light and settlements don't is like an, a technological accident of history that I think shaped a lot of the past 150 years. So I think that the, learning about the importance of that I also enjoyed diving into the arguments between commodity money theorists and credit money theorists mm -hmm. and to really kind of tease out those nuances. So I tried to steal even arguments I disagree with. I would try to steal man and find out, okay, who's the smartest person that, that makes this claim and find that person and read what they wrote and then try to deconstruct it, you know, see where I agree or disagree. I also enjoyed reading about the nuances of the classical gold standard because I enjoyed seeing how people like economists and logicians of that era, like Jevons, would analyze that current system at the time and describe the various pros and cons, which are kind of like lost to history. We kind of look back, we just kind of say, oh, it's this great time of a classical gold standard. Whereas like when you actually go back to when it was operating, this guy's like, hey, this thing's levered 20 to one. It's working really efficiently, but we got to be careful mm -hmm. with how we're running this thing. And it's like that kind of nuance is really, you know, it's when you go back to initial source material, it's really fascinating. And so I would say that whole progression has just been very interesting. Also, I was fortunate to have Joaquin Book, 
serve as a research provider and editor of the book. And he uh, is a professional monetary historian. Hmm. And he's got a master's in Oxford from it. And so he fact-checked everything I, I looked up. And so there'd be occasionally something where I didn't state it the right way, or there's a certain historical nuance that he knew that I wasn't familiar with. And I would go and rewrite that paragraph and kind of... So I learned from working with great people. Wow. That's really cool. Okay. After chapter 20, I tried to look at the uh, introduction because this is where you give the introduction to Bitcoin and you kind of lay it out for a person that's maybe never even read about it. And I was just trying to think about it in terms of, of that person or that reader who's seeing it for the first time. And I just suspect they would be really skeptical as they're reading through it. And, and I would imagine a lot of it is just they just don't have the technical competence on how it all works to really have any type of faith or trust in, in that type of new protocol or system. So like one of the, I'm just trying to think of ideas that maybe they would have and they'd, they'd look at the, the way that the node system works and the way that you have it laid out in the book. And I think a beginner would say, well, if I'm a government, why don't I just create 50,000 nodes and then start interjecting those nodes into the network to maybe sow discourse or confusion amongst the, the, the way that the nodes coordinate with each other? Why wouldn't the government do something like that and sow seeds of chaos into Bitcoin? Or why doesn't that work from a technology standpoint? Well, they can certainly try. I mean, there's various attacks that are possible. The question is how, how powerful they are. You know, as people point out with this whole kind of recent BlackRock spot ETF question, you know, if a ton of Bitcoin value gets concentrated, what is, and let's say it's also concentrated in the hands of a government so they can kind of impose laws on miners and stuff like that. Could you have power over a, a hard fork, for example, or a soft fork? And could you kind of, could a sufficiently powerful entity shape Bitcoin to their will? And the way I would describe it, when we look at kind of institutions, so one of the things that humans do is we abstract things. So back in the day, if a person was king, you know, that person is king. There's no abstraction. That person is the ruler. Whereas, for example, in the United States and, and, and other places like that, the office of the president is abstracted from the person holding it at the current time. Right. So the, the president is a powerful institution, whereas the person holding it is, is not necessarily so. And we build up kind of part of the reason why the United States has been successful is because we build up these separate institutions, these divisions of powers. And so you have the Supreme Court, you have the Congress, you have the president, you have a semi-separate uh, central bank that came up later. And then at the foundation of the whole thing is you have a constitution that is purposely very, very hard to change and gives you a foundational set of rules to work with. And the way I would argue it is that none of these institutions are incorruptible. None of them are invincible but they're robust. They're, it's very slow to corrupt them. It's very hard to be corrupted. And that's why they've been able to last as long as they have. But it still requires some degree of social maintenance to work with these very robust systems. And I would describe Bitcoin similarly, which is similar to the US Constitution. It's this like open source, robust, highly incentivized thing that distributes the power as much as possible. And while it may not be it's, not, it's certainly not invincible or impervious to any sort of corruption or attack, but it is highly robust and resistant to such attacks as long as there are a sufficient number of people to do their best to try to maintain it. So it, it basically serves as an organizational tool that allows people to come together and the burden of effort is always on those trying to change it. And I think that part of the monetization process of Bitcoin is us testing how good it is. Right. So we throw every attack we have at it and see, can it survive this one? Can it survive this one? 
Can it survive this one? And what if we copy it and change these variables? Uh, no, that doesn't work. Okay, what if we copy it again? And so it's like this whole series of attacks on it. And so to answer your question, I mean, you, you could spin up a lot of nodes, but what makes a node valuable is that it's your node. You're playing your part in saying, this is, this is what I accept as Bitcoin. And this person might control 50,000 fake nodes, but it's really just one person or one entity behind it. And they're not changing what I'm defining as Bitcoin. And so then it becomes how many real human actors and how much real capital is behind the ones that are not changing. And so again, I would just say that Bitcoin is resistant to attacks. It's not invulnerable to attacks, but it gives us one of the most credible set of organizational tools to build a, what I would argue is a very good monetary foundation. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. And if somebody's running these 50,000 nodes with like a different type of software, 
or there's different consensus rules on those 50,000 nodes, I can look at that and say, I'm not connecting to any of those 50,000 nodes because it, it looks like they're a bad actor or they're trying to do something. And so they're almost immediately excluded from the network because it's very detectable, it's fully auditable. And I think the honest participants in the network are going to just identify it for what it is, just to kind of compound on, on your point. When we look at where Bitcoin is today, in excess of 10 years of history, and it continues to progress, the, the, the adoption continues to go up. But I think people would look at it and say, you know, it's quote unquote better money, but why hasn't it, t- if it's so great, why hasn't it really kind of taken over? And they're looking at the, at the timeline of this adoption curve and they're saying, yeah, I just, I don't think there's any way that the dollar is ever going to be overcome or beat by this thing called Bitcoin. It's, it's already had a decade plus and it still hasn't done it yet. When I talk to people, and they say like what they think is going to cause that adoption to take place. There's really kind of two schools of thought. And I know the truth is usually somewhere in the middle of this, but I'm kind of curious to hear your, your opinions on these two schools of thought. One is all the developing nations around the world, they need better money because they're dealing... You, you gave the example of like what you're seeing in Egypt. They need some type of reliable, uncensorable money that doesn't get debased at a breakneck pace, and they're going to start using it and more and more, and then that's going to drive global adoption. The other side of the argument would be global credit markets are so broke, you're having this breakdown in global cooperation and inflation is far outpacing the yields that you're getting in these really large multi-trillion dollar credit markets. And because they're not going to be able to get that under control, they're going to have to turn to something that isn't getting debased because you know credit markets go to zero in in a scenario where a new money emerges and it's it's a better form of money that that's going to be the thing that that drives global adoption when you look at these two arguments how do you kind of shore it up as to what you think is actually going to potentially drive this new form of money to take hold around the world so it's a great question. And I'll be the first to admit I don't know the future. And so I, instead, I, I try to use whatever economic or technical knowledge I have to kind of shape or reason kind of the, the general direction of the path I see. The first thing I'd point out is that Bitcoin went from zero to a trillion dollar market cap faster than any other asset. And so it's already doing quite well. I say it's gone very far in 14 years. You know, Satoshi wrote 20 years, either Bitcoin's going to have a ton of volume or no volume. It's kind of a Boolean outcome, whether or not this thing works. And I would say so far, 14 years into his 20 years, we're on the path of a ton of volume. I mean, it, the amount of value settled per year is in the, in the trillions. And so I would say it's on the path of being successful. Now, one of the challenges with Bitcoin adoption is the volatility. When you look at most technological adoptions, whether it's electricity or radio or the internet or smartphones, when people transition to that technology, they rarely ever transition back. You know, most people don't get electricity and decide they don't want it and they go back to not having electricity. They don't get a smartphone and then decide, you know what, I want to, I want to live in a flip phone world. And so you, you tend to be, you tend to see very smooth adoption curves with most technologies. And that allows it to be very quick. The problem with an inherently monetary technology, specifically the unit of account itself, is that the, as it gets adopted, people naturally lever it and naturally rehypothecate it and play games with it. And human euphoria takes over just like the stock market. And so you get these boom bust cycles and that discourages a lot of people. So you actually, unlike 
you know, people that adopt electricity and never go back. There are people that adopt Bitcoin and then decide, no, it's too, uh, it's, it's too volatile. It's dead now. I made a mistake and they, they get out of it. And then it takes years to rebuild the next base mm. to the next larger bull market. So I think that a monetary technology inherently takes longer to, and we never really, it's, it's not really, if we were to go back and look at the initial gold adoption, how long do you think that took, right? Mm-hmm. It's like monetary network effects just take a long time to build. You know, we're going against an incumbent tens of trillions dollar system with, you know, a very small uh, starting point. And so I think it's inherently understood to be a multi-decade process with this level of change. I mean, you don't, you don't rip out the base layer of money and put in another base layer of money globally in 14 years. It's just, it's not realistic. It's the disruption from that is immense. And the accounting systems, the legal systems, the human conceptions of what money is, all of that takes time and arguably generations, you know, like just newer people kind of grow up with it. It's more natural to them. And it just kind of slowly puts itself in, in society over time, as long as the incentives make sense, which, you know, Bitcoin's fixed supply and decentralization helps it be robust through that process. So that's my first answer to the question. The second answer to the question is that people often assume that the dollar is a steady state, that the dollar, as it looks now, is roughly going to look like the dollar in 50 years, except, of course, you know, it'll have gradual inflation along the way, but that it's essentially going to look the same as it does now. One of the problems you see is that if you look at developing countries in particular, Bitcoin is often too volatile for them to accept, even though they have a, a major debasement problem with their local currency. And so a lot of them jump to stable coins. You know, if you look in Argentina, you'll say you'll see someone, okay, says, well, I understand Bitcoin and I hold some of it long term, but if I want to hold money for six months, I don't want to hold it in Bitcoin because I could lose value. So I'll hold it in, in Tether. And from their perspective, it's, you know, a dollar is way better than the Argentine peso. And even though Tether is centralized, the central hub is not in Argentina which is for them the key thing. And they're saying, well, sure, I'm not going to put my life savings in Tether, but it's like a really good six-month option. And they might, they, that's why a lot of them will actually hold more value in, in Tether than, than Bitcoin. So it's as long as the dollar itself is robust enough to work and is less volatile, a lot of people gravitate still towards the dollar rel- rather than going directly to Bitcoin and becoming like instant Bitcoin you know, maxis and just only focusing on Bitcoin. Uh, and that's just a reality on the ground in a lot of these countries. Now, I think what can eventually interrupt that system. So one is that Bitcoin is going to keep, I would argue, keep getting larger and more adopted and eventually less volatile. That's one variable that's happening. It, it just takes a long time. And the other variable is that the dollar is increasingly becoming less stable. You know, as debt as a percentage of GDP keeps building up, you eventually get to a point where you get some sort of reset. And that sounds like that's like a conspiracy theory. That's like a heterodox way of thinking of it. But when you look at just monetary systems throughout history, Every two or three generations, you tend to have some big depeg or devaluation or reset. It's just how, it's how things work, especially when you have such layers of abstraction and centralization. And historically, when you get developed countries with this much debt to GDP, eventually the system just breaks down. It's just the, the interest expense becomes too immense. It becomes too exponentially comical. And people, even something as robust as the dollar, eventually becomes quite inflationary. It's just very hard for to use it relative to other assets. The, the amount of new currency creation becomes so significant. And so I would say the combination of all the, over the long arc of time, the eventual breakdown of the dollar and the ascension of Bitcoin through multiple, multiple cycles is what can allow it to gradually compete with something as large as the dollar. And I think the variable that ties into the second one is that when the dollar system was born, uh, so Bretton Woods, 
the United States was like over 40% of global GDP. We had the biggest industrial base. We had the most gold. We had the biggest military. Basically, we were just completely dominant. And as the world has recovered from World War II and as it's, as it's kind of um, rebuilt aspects of itself, you know, we see China and India reasserting themselves as major global powers like they actually were prior to this you know, past 200 years or so. They were always major economic powers, those regions at least. And they're reasserting themselves as being very dominant. And so we see more decentralization across the world in terms of where is the percentage of GDP? Where is the industrial base? Where is the gold? And it becomes increasingly untenable for the entire world to use a dollar ledger system when the United States is, you know, diminishing from 40% of global GDP to 25%. And right now, when you look at it, depending on how you measure it, whether purchasing power parity or nominal, we're somewhere between 15 and 25% of global GDP. And as we keep slipping, it just becomes increasingly untenable for that, that one currency to have such a big lock on the world. So I think we're gradually moving towards decentralization. And I think developed market currencies are becoming increasingly unstable compared to how they've averaged over the past 50 years. In your book, you get into a little bit of Gresham's law and Thur's law. And you talk about how when you're looking at Gresham's law in this money that is less desirable, the velocity of it keeps picking up as you approach almost like a terminal velocity and then a flipping into Thur's law. When we look at stable coins, and we look at how they're immediately saleable and the desire for more. I mean, when we look at the amount of stable coins that just keep popping up and the size, these assets that are contained inside of these, these stable coin markets and how large and how substantial they are in such a short amount of time. And we look at that velocity as part of the overall like global equation. Is this something that you think could help us understand whether that flipping over to Thur's law is is taking place is by contrasting the stable coin velocity to Bitcoin's lightning network? Is that how we should maybe look at that uh, flipping happening and maybe where we're at in space and time by comparing and contrasting the, the speed of, of money between those two markets? Or is there some other way that you could think through understanding that potentially happening, that flipping part. So I think mon- like monitoring both relative market capitalizations and monitoring velocity are both very useful metrics. In some ways, it's apples and oranges because Bitcoin and, and, and dollars not quite used the same way, especially at their current level of adoption. The larger and liquid, more liquid money is generally going to be the one that's the unit of account. And so until Bitcoin, say, rivals the dollar, it's, it's you know, we're going to, most people are going to think in dollars, they're going to, things are priced in dollars. And so Bitcoin is the thing that's kind of volatile relative to the dollar rather than the other way around. You know, we like to say everything priced in Bitcoin, it's not Bitcoin that's volatile, it's everything else that's volatile. But really, your ability to buy, say, apples or copper, when you hold Bitcoin, those things are more volatile for you, not for the dollar holder. Mm-hmm. So really, uh, you know, even as a, a big Bitcoin enthusiast, it's not that the dollar is volatile to Bitcoin. It genuinely is that Bitcoin's volatile relative to the dollar. That's the larger, more liquid, saleable unit. Uh, now, it's a worse unit. It's controlled. It's centralized. It devalues. But for unit of account purposes, that's still the one that, that has the power. And you know, I think over time, that as, we, as I just discussed, that, that degrades, whereas Bitcoin hopefully strengthens and has been strengthening. And... When we look at Gresham's law and Tears law, so the originally way to like think of Gresham is say that a gold and silver ratio. So you, let's say you peg, you, you know, United States pegs it at 15 to one, but the global exchange rate is 15 and a half to one. 
And so you'll get this like mismatch. And so whatever metal ends up kind of being pegged at, a, at like an undervalued rate, that's the one that's going to, you know, circulate. Actually, no, the undervalued one's going to be hoarded and the overvalued one's going to circulate. You're going to spend the weaker money into the economy and you're going to hoard or you're going to move offshore the, the stronger money that's, that's not being valued appropriately. The second way that, that I argue this can apply is when you have a tax on the better money. So if every Bitcoin transaction is a taxable event and every dollar transaction is not a taxable event, well, then unless you specifically need the properties of Bitcoin or unless you're so into the space that you're kind of just doing it on purpose, you want to pay with more things in Bitcoin because you want to support Bitcoin, most people will generally pay in the units that are not taxable, mm-hmm. right? And so now if it gets to a point where there's so many Bitcoin holders that are all talking to the politicians and saying, Hey, take away these taxes. That's what I want. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have to, you have to chip away at that over time. And so I would say the yeah, combination of existing network effects, existing size and stability, existing understanding and brand of how it works. The dollar is like, you know, like Coca Cola is not that special, but it has a brand. Everybody in the world knows what Coca Cola is. Similarly, everybody knows the brand of the dollar. And that's a combination of the network effects, the liquidity, the brand. These take time. It's a gigantic ship that has to turn slowly. And then when you add on to that tax authority and things like that, I think either until Bitcoin gets large and, and stable enough or the dollar breaks down or the United States decides to cut off stable coins, you know, like Argentina can't do anything to tether, but the United States could if they decided they, they didn't want these digital euro dollars to exist anymore. And so I think there's multiple paths where it can happen, but I think it's inevitably going to be a long one. Doesn't the treasury need stable coins? Like as we go further down this road, five, 10 years from now, you need a buyer for all of this stuff. And I find so miraculous is the buyer really kind of emerges as these stable coin entities that are going to be willing to buy short duration debt, not long duration, because there's just too much inflation risk there for them to squat on long duration. But I think that you have this natural relationship that the treasury here, at least in the United States, and I would argue any G7 country, needs stable coins. Do you agree with that idea? And if not, I'm, I'm curious to hear why. We often think of governments as monolithic entities, but in reality, most governments have multiple different factions or people that understand things differently. And as an example, when it comes to Bitcoin mining, There are some government officials that say, hey, for environmental reasons, we want to kick out Bitcoin miners. And there are other ones in the government that say, no, no, we want to encourage all the mining to come here so we can censor the network with our laws, right? And it's just different priorities or different levels of understanding of what they're trying to accomplish. Those two factions do exist. When it comes to stable coins, you know, on one hand, there's, there's groups that say, we don't like the fact that there's this, you know, unregulated or like not unregulated, but there's like an offshore digital euro dollar that we don't have full control over. On the other hand, there are people that say, well, this is a huge new buyer of treasuries. And also it, it, it helps extend the dollar's reach globally. And it's a useful new technology that we shouldn't interfere with. That's kind of the different factions. And when you look at the concept of de-dollarization, that's, it's in the news a lot because of the whole BRICS thing and, and you know, sanctioning of Russian reserves and all, all this stuff. There's all these attempts at the sovereign level of various powerful countries to try to distance themselves from the dollar. But what's interesting is that there's, there's two levels here. So there's the so- sovereign level, and then there's the people themselves. So are people themselves in developing countries de-dollarizing? No. 
Uh, you don't see Argentinians deciding, you know what, I want to hold Chinese yuan now. You don't see Egyptians saying, you know, I want to hold physical Chinese yuan in my apartment as my monetary savings. You don't see that. It's not an accident that like nine, over 99% of stable coins are dollars. That's just where the demand is. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have kind of the ability to make dollars globally, people want them. You could have stable coins with other currencies and they, around the margins they exist, but there's, just, there's no demand or liquidity or saleability for them. Yeah, I think basically like, I think the smarter faction in the United States would basically say, okay, support stable coins. They're a major buyer of our treasuries. Even as sovereign nations try to de-dollarize, this is a way for us to keep the dollars among all those foreign people at the people level. And it, it keeps the dollar's reach going for a longer period of time. So yeah, I think it depends on how, how many orders of thought they think through this and how well they understand the technology and the dynamics involved. In one section of your book, you get into what a Bitcoinized world would look like and how it's different than what we're accustomed to today. One of the things you mentioned is no unit abstraction, no financial middleman, better global connections without the friction in between the currency exchange. But the one I, I want to hear from, that you cover in depth here is the idea of credit and how what we view as credit and being so abundant in our society today really kind of whittles itself down to just the pittance of the overall broader economy. People who are not Bitcoiners that would maybe hear that would be like, what in the world are you talking about? The credit will always be around. So help explain to them why you have this opinion, Lynn. And I would agree that credit's always going to be around in some degree. It's just a matter of how much formal credit exists relative to, say, the monetary base, for example, or how, how much do businesses or individuals finance themselves with equity versus credit? And how long duration is that credit? Those are things that are impacted by the type of money. And generally, what we see when we look in history is monetary hardness and debt is almost like a bell curve, where if money is very strong, like let's say a gold standard or a Bitcoin, credit exists, but it tends to be used judiciously because if you're a borrower, how much long duration debt do you want to borrow in a hard unit of money that appreciates relative to most things? You want to be obviously pretty careful with that. And so there's less borrower demand for a very robust, solid money. When you look at the other side of the spectrum, if you have a very weak money, let's say uh, Argentina, for example, nobody wants to lend in that unit of account because it's very hard for them to determine what value they're going to get back in five, 10 years, mm-hmm. right? So, that, so there might be people want, like, if someone wants to give me a loan in Argentine pesos, I'll take it, but no one's going to give me that loan. Whereas ironically, the middle of the bell curve, we have a gradually devaluing unit of account, like a developed market uh, fiat currency that tends to accumulate the most debt because it works for borrowers. And it works for lenders reasonably well. And it, it's stable enough that it kind of builds up this more and more and more debt to GDP. But then ironically, that becomes the source of instability. So its own stability is in what part, you know, it kind of fine-tuned, that's like the fine-tuned point for debt maximization, which inherently is its own undoing. And so what I would argue is that in a, in a world with an even scarcer unit of account than gold, so Bitcoin in this case, the incentive to borrow large amounts of it for long duration is very limited. You know, there's still going to be various types of credit. You know, anytime someone owes someone else money to say, hey, I need some money. Can you, can I lend some? It's an emergent phenomenon credit. It just happens. But, and there's still high rate of return impacts where you might want to borrow Bitcoin. But the idea of just having constant debt on your balance sheet would make less sense. So we can kind of, we can kind of um, separate money, uh, debt into two types. So there's very like high, highly productive debt 
right? Let's say you want to expand your business and you don't want to give up equity. So you, you borrow a one year loan that's like pretty small relative to your total business value. Someone might make that loan rather than equity because they'd rather have a defined and lower risk outcome that's higher in the capital stack. Maybe you want to get education. So you're willing to take on some debt to get like a, you know, a STEM degree, for example, whatever the case may be, because you know, it's going to, it's going to increase your earning potential. There's various ways where credit can make sense. Now, the, un, the less productive types of credit or debt are ones that are just kind of permanent parts. And what you're primarily doing is shorting it. So for example, Coca-Cola has debt. Now, this is like a century old corporation. Why do they have debt? And the reason is because they choose to have debt as a permanent part of their capital structure because that debt devalues. They're basically, they're using their economic strength, their high credit rating to borrow plenty of dollars at low interest rates for long duration to basically short it. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't make sense in gold or Bitcoin. Whether it's governments running these massive, gigantic debt to GDP ratios, whether it's people with 30-year mortgages, whether it's corporations with debt as a permanent part of their capital structure, that's the type of debt that makes a lot less sense when the unit of account is very hard. Mm-hmm. So, And I'm not the first to make this argument that basically in a, in a Bitcoin world, you would have much less debt relative to equity because the types of debt where you're practically only sorting the currency go away and it just becomes highly, highly accretive types of debt. And then also, when you, when you think of fractional reserve banking, one of the reasons that fractional reserve banking works moderately well in the current era, you know, we, we have all these booms and busts and, and things like that. But the reason it works well enough is because if your interest rate you're earning on your deposits is lower than the monetary growth rate, like the growth of money supply, that ends up being relatively safe. I mean, you're getting devalued. You're getting all sorts of problems. But the fact that a central entity can just create more of it means you're, you're unlikely to lose nominally in a default. So people, people kind of put up with this because it works well enough. Whereas in a world where it's inherently unsafe to have a deposit rate that is higher than the supply growth rate of money, right? It's just inherently the case. You're either taking on serious credit risk by having that interest rate or you're taking on serious liquidity risk. One of the two, maybe both, by having that rate of return. So in a unit where the supply rate of growth of money is zero, any interest is inherently taking on risk. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean people won't do it. It's, it's investing. It's, it's investing, it's speculating, it's putting capital to work, but it's not a passive risk-free activity in a way that we think of banks today. How about taxes in a Bitcoin world? One of the... And I talk about this in the book. One of the kind of downsides of the whole fiat currency system is that when the government doesn't feel like taxes are going to be popular enough to do and to fund what they want to spend, they just print the difference. Mm-hmm. So they say, well, we can't, fu- we can't finance this as transparently as we want to. So we're going to finance it opaquely. An example I use is that during World War I, the UK wanted to get involved, even though they, I mean, they weren't being attacked. This conflict's going on in, in, you know, in, in Europe. And they say, well, we want to get involved for geopolitical reasons. We don't want Germany to win. And so we're going to get involved. And so they try to, they know that taxing everyone, they're not going to tax a UK steel worker and say, yeah, we got to go fight the Germans in Europe. So we have to raise your taxes. That's going to be very unpopular. You're going to get a revolution if you tax too much. Maybe you can do a little bit, but if you try to tax a ton, you're going to, you're going to, it's not going to be workable. The other option is you raise debt. You say, well, okay, you know, we'll pay you interest, buy these bonds, and we'll use it to go do war. And those in UK's case, not enough people subscribe to those bonds. They were like, no, I don't, I don't think that's a good investment. 
And so instead, the UK just printed the difference. And what they did was they devalued everyone's savings without telling them advance, without them being able to even know or measure what's happening. And it just got taken from them. And so in a Bitcoin world, if more people hold their own hard money that a government can't print, then basically all of government expenditure has to be financed by either taxation or small amounts of, of debt, you know, to kind of smooth things out here and there. But basically, it kind of forces governments to be somewhat more transparent and say, okay, if you want to do this expenditure, how are we going to finance it? Because we can't you know, just print the difference. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Lynn, I'm going to read a quote that you put here in the book, and uh, this all relates to uh, trade-offs as the as any cryptocurrency blockchain is created. There's trade-offs that are constantly being accounted for and what they're creating. And uh, this is the quote that you wrote. Proponents of newer cryptocurrencies often criticize Bitcoin for being old technology, when in reality, it's just strict about the trade-offs that it was designed with and was built to maximize security and decentralization over all other attributes. Why are those two attributes, security and decentralization, I think the decentralization part we've covered pretty extensively, but more on the security side, maybe talk to that and any other comments or or thoughts that you have about this idea that a newcomer that's coming to this is going to look at this and say, yeah, Bitcoin's like really old. There's Solana. There's all these other things that have come out in the last couple of years. How in the world are they not better? Is really kind of the argument that I think a newbie that would be showing up to this discussion and, and looking at it would be saying because technology is always better now than it was ten years ago, or you know, you go back historically in time. How are the new ones not better? Yeah, and I think when we put ourselves in their shoes. It's very rational for them to assume that's the case. Like you said, most technologies are better over time. And therefore, they're like, well, Bitcoin was the concept, but it's, you know, that's clearly not going to be the end. That's what they'll think. They'll say, okay, what, what's the newer one? What's the better one? You know, it's been 14 years. Of course, there's better technology. One point of contrast is that when we look at protocols, they tend to stick around for a very long period of time. When you make things purposely simple and robust, the design space is very limited. And the technological growth and upgrades tend to happen in layers on and around that very simple foundation. So for example, Ethernet is like 50 years old, right? And it's, and it's nowhere near being out of date. You know, they upgraded the speeds over time in backward compatible ways. And it's this evolving protocol that ultimately is very slow to change. And we think, of, well, why are we still using Ethernet? It's 50-year-old technology. Because it's, it's literally still the best we have is why. And it has that dominant network effect. Even if you make something marginally better, well, you're competing with the fact that every computer has an Ethernet port and not this other protocol. And then two, any, any changes you might make, future Ethernet versions could maybe incorporate. And so they just get absorbed into that dominant protocol. The same is true for TCP IP. The same is true for USB. These protocols tend to be very long-lasting technologies. And ultimately, when we look at Bitcoin and, and block size wars and crypto and stuff like that, a lot of it comes down to trying to figure out what problem we are trying to solve. And so some of the initial assumptions were, I want to make transactions easier. So I want to be able to use base layer money to buy coffee, for example. But it turns out for a lot of people, that's not the problem that they have. I mean, in the United States, I don't have a problem buying coffee. My Visa card works well enough. My cash works well enough. I don't go out every day and think like, man, my money's so bad at transactions. Now, in certain countries, that might be the case. But even then, it's, it's often not. What a lot of us have instead is... I want to be able to store liquid value, move it around globally, have nobody be able to stop me, or at least it's very hard to stop me. And that I know that the rules, I'm not going to get rug pulled in the next 20 years, right? That I'm not going to just, I don't have to watch it too closely. 
because it's not just going to get changed. There's no central entity that can just double the number of units or sends to me or something. In that sense, the problem you're trying to solve is an immutable foundation of money. You know, basically a decentralized central bank, a decentralized ledger that is robust and backed by energy and distributed so that it's very hard to corrupt. You know, to the extent that it'd be corrupted, it'd be a very long and slow process. And the burden of proof is always on the corruptor. But the whole block size wars, I think people erred in the wrong direction for trying to, you know, sacrifice that decentralization to make it faster. But this is, you're, you're solving the wrong problem. And when it comes to crypto, a lot of it is about trying to make them more expressive and complicated. But again, that often, that generally comes at the cost of decentralization and security. So when we think of decentralization and security, we want something that, one, the code base is as simple as possible to minimize bugs and hacks and, and problems and, and incentive breakdowns. And then two, we want it to be sufficiently decentralized so that any entity that wants to either change the rules of the network or to sense the network has a massive up to uphill battle, even if you think out 10, 20, 50, 100 years. Because you can't transmit value into the future and it still be worth the same amount because the units are just constantly getting to base. So like, you know, if it's $100 worth of buying power today or one Bitcoin's worth of buying power today, you want to be able to transmute that 20 years into the future and it still can go out and buy me the same amount of buying power as what I've got right now. And yeah, let me read something else here. This is a little long, but I think this is such a great quote and from such a, an important figure in this movement. Adam Back, you put this in your book, Lynn. He said this, there's something unusual about Bitcoin. So in 2013, I spent about four months of my spare time trying to find any way to appreciably improve Bitcoin, you know, across scalability, decentralization, privacy, fungibility, making it easier for people to mine on small devices, a bunch of metrics that I considered to be metrics of improvement. And so I looked at a lot of different changing parameters, changing designs, changing networks, changing cryptography. And, you know, I came up with lots of different ideas some of which have been proposed by other people since. But basically, to my surprise, it seemed that almost anything you did that arguably improved it in, in one way made it worse in multiple other ways. It made it more complicated, used more bandwidth, made some other aspect of the system objectively worse. And so I came to think about it that Bitcoin kind of exists in a narrow pocket of design space. You know, the design space of all possible designs is an enormous search space, right? And counterintuitively, it seems you can't significantly improve it. And bear in mind, I come with a background where I have a PhD in distributed systems and spent most of my career working on large-scale internet systems for startups and big companies and security protocols and that sort of thing. So I feel like I have a reasonable chance, if anybody does, of incrementally improving something of this nature. And basically, I gave it a shot and concluded, wow, there's literally basically nothing. Literally everything you do makes it worse, which was not what I was expecting to find out. I find that, and for people that don't know who Adam Back is, I mean, he's literally referenced in the, in the Satoshi White Paper. And for him to say that he spent this time really contemplating on all the trade-offs and trying to improve it and saying there was nothing I could do to really objectively improve this I think it's just a really important highlight that you put in, in the book. And I don't know if you have anything else that you want to add, but I just think it's important to kind of read that out for people. I'll add two things. One is that, like I said about protocols, it's very, if you analyze Ethernet and think, how can I make this better? The design space 
compared to what Ethernet already does is very tight. Mm-hmm. So basically the answer is that as Moore's law gives us better speed, we can speed it up gradually over time. And that's about it, right? I mean, there's little marginal things you can do. Same thing for TCP IP. When you have, a, when you have something that's simple and at the foundation, you want that to be simple and robust. And you want complexity to be on the edges. That's generally a good design principle. And that's, that's historically the way that the Bitcoin ecosystem has developed. And I think that's what he touches on there. And then two, I would point to the, I made the analogy on Nostra yesterday about Bitcoin and the U.S. Constitution. I'm, I'm not the first one that's made this, which is to say, is the U.S. Constitution a perfect document? No. In fact, and we might disagree what we think a perfect U.S. Constitution looks like. You know, I could probably write down 10, like a new bill of rights that are like added to the Constitution. I want additional rights for citizens that I wish in my perfect world would be in the Constitution. Let's say I want the next amendment to say, you have the right to use whatever money that you deem appropriate, right? That citizens have this right. I can, and I can picture nine other additional rights that I want included in, in the document. But at the end of the day, what makes the Constitution valuable is that it's very, very, very hard to change. You need a supermajority in Congress and a supermajority among states to change it. And so a document that is good and nearly immutable is better than a document that's great, but that five years from now, we have no clue what it's going to look like because it's easy to change, mm-hmm. right? And so that I would argue that Bitcoin is in this design space, similar to Ethernet or similar to TCP IP, where it solves a certain problem in as simple as a way as possible. And then much like the US Constitution is what it tries to maximize is difficulty of change. So it's not impossible to change. Because that would also be a design flaw, but it's very, very, very hard to change. One of the trade-offs that you talk about in the book is privacy. And I know from participating in this community for a long time, privacy is something that a lot of people are really passionate about. They look at projects like Monero and they're saying, this is a better form of money because it's more private than Bitcoin. But I think you do a really good job talking about that trade-off and why Bitcoin is a better solution for people and where you can maybe push the privacy into a second layer. So uh, can you explain some of that for folks? So when you look at cryptocurrencies, you know a lot of them are just outright scams, but there are a handful of areas where intelligent people truly propose things, say, hey, what if you make a more private currency or what if you make a more expressive currency? And these are, you know, I think if we were to rerun this multiple times, it's natural that people are going to test all these different answers to see what works and what doesn't. There's no world where only Bitcoin exists. No one tries any other crypto networks and you know, it's Bitcoin wins, right? There's, there's always going to be these tests and these market challenges and these iterations to see what works in practice rather than just theory crafting. And one of the downsides of Bitcoin is that it's not super private. You know, it's private enough that no one formally knows who Satoshi is. You know, if you use it very skillfully, it's private, but it's hard to use it privately. And so there's these privacy coins that makes it easier to use the coins privately. And the downside is that they sacrifice some degree of auditability. So it's easier for undetected inflation bugs and things like that to occur. There's a little bit more layers of trust in the code and the encryption and the proofs compared to Bitcoin that is more inherently auditable. And so if you're trying to build a foundation of money, you know, if you're trying to, if you want a, a network that's worth $10 trillion or more, that robustness, that audibility, that decentralization is arguably a, f- a more important component than privacy or Turing completeness or whatever the case may be. And so to the extent that you can build those things on layers on top of it, I think is, it makes a much better engineering model than trying to incorporate those things right into the base layer where you sacrifice some degree of decentralization or robustness or audibility 
in order to achieve something that's sure might be useful. Privacy and Turing completeness can be useful things. But if we're kind of getting down to the very base layer, you know, down to Ethernet, down to TCP IP, down to the Constitution, we want something that's easy for us to all agree on. And then when we build these, these little silos or complexities on top of it, we can kind of pick our own paths that all tie into this very simple and audible and robust base layer. And so the problem with Monero is that it generally degrades in value versus Bitcoin. It's hard for it to establish the same level of trust and, and adoption. And so you might get more privacy, but you don't want to hold your value there long term. And then when you get in and out of Monero, that's where the privacy breaks down because there's not a lot of liquidity there. Privacy is limited by liquidity, especially the entry and exit points. And so you're still somewhat stuck. Whereas I think there's a lot of good tools on the horizon that can make Bitcoin more private. We already have coin joins that are significant. Lightning Network is relatively private for the sender and over time gets generally more private. There's, there's more proposals to further fix some of its privacy issues. We have Fediments. We use a uh, 40-year-old Chalmin Mint technology that works quite well to make it hard to, you know, it's near complete privacy as long as you have sufficient liquidity. And so in general, I think that while privacy is a very important tool, I think so far the, the market and just engineering design observations have shown that it's not the best for the base layer. You get into a thorough discussion between proof of work and proof of stake protocols and the advantages, the disadvantages. I mean, you just do a really fair job uh, kind of laying them out. But with that in mind, Lynn, I, I just want to emphasize your discussion points around with proof of work that you lay out in the book, how there's this, you can leave the network, you can come back and you can get basically back up to date, but in proof of stake, it's, that's not necessarily the case. I think this is really important when you have a newcomer that comes to the space and they come with this pretty common question or concern when they come into Bitcoin. They, they say, I see Target and I see these large companies that you would think would have really superior cybersecurity in place and they all, every one of them always get hacked and the information is compromised. How in the world do I, do I know that something like that will not happen with Bitcoin? And how can I place trust that this thing could literally be the global settlement layer for the whole planet when the targets of the world are getting hacked all the time? Yeah, so that goes back down to keeping it as simple and audible as possible. And then the other variable is why that proof of work, that energy component is so important because you're tethering it to real world resources. And I use the comparison between volatile and non-volatile memory. So with volatile memory, it's faster but if you lose power and turn it back on, you've lost all your data. Whereas non-volatile memory, it has limitations, but if you depower it and turn it back on, the data is still there. And so with, with proof of state, the complication is that there's no immutable, the network itself does not prove that it's the original. You know, Satoshi originally pointed out the reason he picked proof of work is because you don't have to trust who sent the information to you. The information itself is self-identifiable, at least once you've gotten past the bootstrapping phase. So the proof of work speaks for itself. You don't have to trust whoever sent it to you. The problem with proof of stake is that there is no inherently, there's no foundation that speaks for itself. So the, the person or entity that sent that information to you is an important variable to consider. There's no immutable history there. And so if you're a node that, that leaves and joins the network in a proof of work system, you can pick up where you left off. Whereas as long as there's been no hard fork. So any, anytime there's an inception or hard fork, there's a, 
a little bit of a bootstrapping phase. But other than those, it's self-evident. Whereas in a proof of stake system, if you're a node that leaves and comes back, there's no immutable proof of what happened while you were gone. All you can do is look around at the current validators that are saying this was the, this was the objective history. And you have to trust them. There's no proof that that's actually what happened. That's just proof of what the majority is saying now. Because they can go back and they can, they can create alternative histories nearly costlessly for what, what transactions were signed and where. Another way of putting it is that the coin holders determine the state of the ledger and the state of ledger determines who the coin holders are. So you have this circular logic system. And the, the problem with the circular logic system is that if there's a critical issue, a governance problem, or you know, imagine something crazy, imagine a solar flare shuts off most of the global internet for a period of time, and it takes us a week to get back online. The problem with proof of stake system is that the network shuts down, Solana shut down, Binance chain shut down. If these systems shut down, either because of an internal bug or because of loss of internet and power, when they restart, there's no node that's always been online. There's no objective immutable history of this network. Whereas it literally, if you somehow shut down the Bitcoin network, like with a bug or the entire internet just goes off for a week and comes back on, we can reconstruct what the objective history of the network was because all that proof of work is still distributed among the nodes. So as the nodes come back online and start trying to communicate with each other, there is an objective source of truth they can find for what is the longest chain that meets the, the rules of the network. Yeah, I would generally argue that proof of work is a more robust system. Uh, it's less corruptible. And it's something that I, you know, I think is very important, you know, despite any costs or benefits it might have in terms of its energy usage, it's totally worth it because what you're trying to replicate here is a system that relies on something, you know, it's not circular logic. At the end of the day, transaction ordering is not based on the amount of coins you hold, which is determined by the ledger. Transaction ordering is determined by your ability to put external energy into the system. Wow. So well put. Let's talk about, you have another section in the book where you're talking about how proof of stake is inherently a centralizing force with enough time. Talk to us why that's the case. If you look at Bitcoin miners, even though mining pools can get pretty big, individual miners generally don't. And of course, miners can always redirect their hash rate to another pool should a pool be giving a problem. So what we really care about is miner centralization. And mining is inherently a, and this is true for physical mining, like if you're a copper miner or a gold miner, there's never really like a copper you know, monopoly or a gold monopoly because you're expending almost as much resources to get the, the commodity as you're earning revenue from the commodity. You don't really control your expenses. You don't really control what your commodity sells for. And so other than trying to make sure you execute well and, you know, make good kind of counter cyclical decisions, it's very hard to run a, a commodity miner. And the same is generally true for Bitcoin mining. It's inherently distributive. Coins tend to distribute over time. And the initial proof of work, the whole point is it's a bootstrapping mechanism. Whereas if you start a proof of stake system and you say, well, okay, the existing coin holders get to determine, you know, what new transactions get added in. The question is, who are the initial coin holders, right? So then, then basically you have to kind of do some sort of like ICO. Basically, you're making your project into a security, a capital raise. So you're starting out with that. And then two, you know, validators, they earn revenue over time by validating, but they're not really expending almost any resources. So as you have more money, you now exponentially grow your money and there's no cost to maintain this. Over time... That's a system that's likely going to centralize the validating power, whereas Bitcoin tends to inherently stay more distributed. Now, 
we still have to monitor kind of incentives of the network to make sure there's nothing that changes about Bitcoin that might make miners more centralized. That's kind of at the heart of some of these discussions around possible soft forks and stuff like that. But basically, as the systems are laid out fundamentally, proof of work is inherently a more distributive type of system, whereas proof of stake inherently tends to exponentially accumulate coins in basically a more and more powerful set of validator hands. All right, this is my last one because Lynn, we could we could go for hours here. Uh, I'm trying to wrap it. There's so much content to cover here, but this one here is. I'm curious your opinion. So when we look at the the rise of stable coins, and we're not even getting into the CBDC stuff, but just stable coins like Tether and all these others, and the fact that they're all being stood up on top of Ethereum and Ethereum like protocols that are proof of stake protocols, which are you know, what we just talked about as far as centralizing forces and how the people with the most amount of coins on these networks are the ones that are validating it. And it's this self-reinforcing or circular loop type uh, system. When we look at that and we look at the sheer velocity of fiat that seems to be accelerating in the use is Ethereum and these other protocols that are proof of stake a necessity for this legacy system to meet Bitcoin where it's at as the proof of work, energy-backed system that it is, and that the world is, and this is just through proof of the adoption curve, more and more demanded of the global population. Is something like that needed because government bureaucrats aren't able to keep up with the speed of technology that's happening with the legacy financial system? You understand where I'm going with that? I don't know that I phrased the, the question all that well. I'll try to see if I answer the question if I, if I go in a different direction. Yeah. Uh, let me know. So I think, again, stable coins serve a demand. There's a demand for stable coins and therefore supply is made to meet that demand. It's a market demand that exists. If we talk to people in Argentina, they say, here's why I want stable coins. And there are people that are happy to issue those stable coins to them. Now, in general, because the stablecoin is centralized, you know, so if we're talking about traditional fiat collateralized stablecoins, the issuer is centralized. The issuer can freeze certain addresses, for example. They tend to not care too much whether the blockchain that those stablecoins are issued on is centralized because the stablecoin itself is centralized. So stablecoins started out on Bitcoin. You know, a Turing complete blockchain like Ethereum uh, was naturally a little bit easier to do them on. And so they gravitated over there. When Ethereum got kind of expensive, in terms of transaction fees, they would gravitate towards an even more centralized system like Tron, where the, the purpose is just you know, keep minimizing fees. And people are sending around these stable coins, and you have multiple layers of centralization that you have to worry about, which is why you know, no one should put money in a stable coin and expect that it's going to be fine for 10 years. It's, that's too risky of an assumption. There's too many points of centralized attacks and rug pulls compared to Bitcoin that's much more likely to be robust 10 years from now than in any of these other systems. But it's serving kind of that intermediate demand. And if you're a government or a, an enterprise, a banking enterprise of some sort, one option is they can develop their own in-house systems. So like, you know, kind of closed central bank digital currency type of things. And another option is they can look at these, you know, kind of open networks that they have all these centralization problems, but there's a workable enough medium there that they can issue their money on top of it. Like we just saw, for example, PayPal is interested in using Ethereum to, to launch stable coins, right? It's just, this is, a, this is a, a substrate that they're finding useful this period of time. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if, if that becomes a tool that governments and banks use or these, these different types of tools, you know, and it's hard to say where it ends up because it's like, do they want 
Ethereum? Do they want Solana? Do they want Tron? Do you, it'll, it'll vary. We'll see where it goes. But in general, I think that as long as the dollar network is as big and robust as it is, it's going to enter all these different technological areas. Whatever technology is available, dollars are going to leak into that technology. That's just how it's going to go. These are just new ways to deliver dollars. And so it should be expected that that's going to be a thing. Ultimately, I would say that Bitcoin is competing against fiat currencies and ultimately the dollar. And that all these other technological layers are just extensions, really, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of those fiat currencies, especially when it comes to stable coins. And so I think Bitcoin long term is the most robust thing, but it does have that volatility. People have to be able to absorb the volatility to be able to hold it. And, you know, you have a bank account in dollars. I have a bank account in dollars. There are people in Argentina that can't have a bank account in dollars. And so their bank account in dollars can be tether. Right. And there's pros and cons with that. It's, you know, kind of like how our dollar accounts have risk. Their tether exposure has risk. And that's the trade off that they're making. I think it's important to educate people on the risks, the very centralization risks that exist in these other networks and that exist in stable coins. And I also think, like I said before, eventually the dollar itself becomes unstable. That's a, a long term outcome. It's something that's, that's a process rather than an event. But it's something that I also think is a a long-term option to consider that sure, right now, from many economic perspectives in various countries, the dollar is attractive to them, at least as an intermediate term instrument. You know, like the Egyptian doctor might say, well, maybe it makes sense to hold stable coins instead of physical banknotes in my apartment, like subject to theft and stuff, right? So there's various, you know, and maybe they maybe they don't. Maybe they say, you know what, I I like the fact that I directly hold the bare assets that you know, only the Fed can devalue, right? So there's, there's various trade-offs for how they might want to hold some of their liquid money. But as long as the dollar is the unit of account for the world, it's natural that it's going to leak into various technology protocols to extend its reach. And it really de-risks the government by having uh, these entities stand up and do this because it really kind of, they can put their hands in the air and they're like, well, this wasn't our fault. Like, we're not controlling those rails. These are independent companies that like Tether that are buying treasuries or buying dollars and they're custodying them. And then they're doing all these swoopy things with technology on whatever protocol in order to, to put it out there. So like, that's not on us. That's on anybody who was trusting them. And I think they can just kind of wave their hands and wash their hands of any type of responsibility as the demand for dollars and immediate settlement of dollars continues to pick up because the velocity of dollars continues to pick up around the world. Yeah. And it's hard to say what the US government will eventually want to do. I mean, it's possible that they eventually want to go after the stable coins. But like we discussed before, it seems to be in their best interest, if they're intelligent, to let those stable coins proliferate because they basically, that's a way of increasing demand for treasuries. Because if you're an Argentinian that holds Tether, in some ways, what you're holding is treasuries. Yeah. You're basically making treasuries more fungible as a savings instrument. Or, or, you know, more liquid, more spendable. Uh, you're kind of increase, you're kind of turning treasuries into a medium of exchange in a way. And because money is often an emergent phenomenon, you know, this demand for dollars emerges. Now, the demand for gold exists for long term savings. The demand for Bitcoin exists for long term savings, and they have to deal with the fluctuations of these assets. But in the intermediate term, there's a demand for dollars in many countries, and it's just it's one of the ways that 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 demand is met. And it's from the government perspective, they monetize treasuries. Now, people argue that stable coins slow down Bitcoin adoption, and that's probably true. But I would argue that the existence of the dollar ultimately is what challenges Bitcoin adoption. That as long as the dollar is a larger network effect, 
and less volatile, that's the 800-pound gorilla in the room. It doesn't matter if it, stable coins are just an extension of the dollar. They're mm-hmm, just using, mm-hmm. The dollar is going to use whatever technology is available to it to extend itself. Stable coins are just one arm of the final boss. When you're thinking about Bitcoin adoption, and ultimately that is, that is the dollar. Is that the only value that you find in a lot of these other uh, quote-unquote block proof-of-stake blockchains is basically stable coins? I think that's been the killer app. I mean, you know, ever since I began covering the space, I kept saying it's, it's Bitcoin and stable coins. You know, what yeah. is blockchain good for? Money. And that's, you know, just kind of seeing how it plays out. Now, I always try to steal, man. I think of like, what, what else could this technology be used for? You know, we see with Nostr that you don't need a blockchain to make something that's reasonably decentralized. Generally, when you need a blockchain is two things. You want it to be decentralized, but also you want to be able to monitor the entire ledger, right? You want it to be a bounded system. So with Bitcoin, we care about that because we want to be able to monitor the entire supply. Whereas with something like Nostr, we don't care the fact that we can't necessarily say how many messages exist in Nostr. Mm-hmm. We care about the part of the network that we want to see, mm-hmm. right? So we want decentralization, but we don't want auditability of the entire network. And that's why we don't need a, a blockchain for Nostr. Now, Bitcoin makes Nostr better by being the money of Nostr and help trying to finance some of these relays and, and keep the system operating. But it's not like block. It's not like Nostra has to run on a blockchain. So I think that the technology of blockchain is overapplied mm-hmm. because it's you need a lot of trade-offs to run a blockchain, and most things don't need a blockchain, and therefore blockchain just adds expense to whatever you're trying to do, other than money. I try to think of things like crypto gaming or digital collectibles, and I generally my Steelman argument is that these things are basically just tech layers. They're competing for a market that I'm not. I'm just not as interested in as the market for money. Because as I talk about in broken money, one of the biggest problems in the world is that vast swaths of people around the world don't have good money. Right. So those of us in the United States and Europe, we have like, you know, it's decent money. It's not good money, but it's like decent. It causes all sorts of problems under the surface that are subtle. When you go out to the developing world, those problems are more obvious. Right. So one of the biggest problems that humanity faces, like the hundred trillion dollar problem, is lack of good money. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's the market that I care about. And so I don't, I kind of just don't even care about most crypto unless they're trying to say that they're better money. Mm-hmm. Then I'll examine that claim and say, well, here's why I don't think that's the case. Right. Mm-hmm. So other than if they're trying to compete for like base layer money, arguing that they're more robust or something, I'll explore them as like little technology projects. But ultimately, I think that the, when we think about this whole space, we're thinking about what technologies are robust and powerful enough to try to fix this problem we found ourselves in. We have a world with 160 different fiat currencies. Like Clearly, this is a local maximum. It's not the best of all possible worlds of money. This the system we've had in place for the past 50 years. There's clearly a lot of improvements to make. And I would argue that, that out of all the technologies that exist, Bitcoin is the most powerful tool we have to keep building on and proliferating and adopting in order to try to solve this problem of, of bad money around the world. I cannot tell the audience enough. You guys got to read this book. Lynn, where can they pick this thing up? I'm assuming it's on Amazon, anywhere else that you want to point people towards. So Broken Money is on Amazon and uh, over time, it'll, it'll appear in, in other stores as well. It's a process of distribution, but yeah, check it out. Awesome. And we'll have links to Lynn has an amazing newsletter that I personally subscribe to. I'll have links to that. We'll have links to the book. 
Lynn, thank you so much for making time and coming on the show. This was just an incredible discussion and uh, just really appreciate everything you're doing for the Bitcoin space, for the finance space. And wow, what a book. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate that. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.